0: This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host, and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome to FinTech Recap, live from beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada, where we are here at Money 2020. I am joined by my favorite co-host, uh, Jason Mikula, who I finally get to see in person after blowing you off last year at the same event.
1: I apologize. Yeah, to be fair, that was the weather's fault, not your fault. But I appreciate you showing up this time.
0: Yes, yes. I felt terrible. I got a lot of flack from people who were like, how could you do that to Jason? I think there are more Jason fans than Alex fans. So anyway, my apologies. We're very excited to be together again, sharing our impressions on what's been happening at Money 2020. Jason, you're leaving tonight. I'm leaving early tomorrow. So we're coming to the end of our Money 2020 experience. Can you give me just your impressions from the show? Like, what stood out
1: to you? You've been here a few times now. This is my third year at the U.S. event, yes. And it's actually really helpful to do this show towards the end of the conference once we've actually had a chance to talk to people, go to some of the sessions, see what's happening. You know, I find that events like this tend to attract people who are generally positive upbeat and optimistic yeah which is nice because there is you know a lot of things happening in the banking space in the fintech space in the crypto space not that i think you or i pay too much attention to that and there's not as much of that in our face this year at money 2020
0: 2021 was crypto 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 this is I've i've struggled to find any crypto companies here honestly
1: Yeah, I think now it's uh, the the pivot to talking about tokenization of real assets. Mm, Yes. Crypto is a four-letter word. Yes, yes. Uh, So we've moved on to other terms. Definitely Definitely. some shifts in the trends of what's top of mind. And I think compliance and regulation are the hot buzzwords of the year. What is your experience, Ben? Um, You
0: know, it's the same. I've gotten a little chance to walk around the exhibit hall. Generative AI Uh, is a big one. Yes. I've seen that sort of splashed on some of the booths. I don't know that I know what it means just reading the booth. I'm not sure they know what it means uh, having put it on the booth, but it's on there. So that's good. It's a lot of infrastructure, I guess, is the other thing. I've seen a lot of compliance and I've seen a much bigger focus on infrastructure. In fact, the Federal Reserve is here and they have a booth at Money 2020 and are promoting Fed Now, which is fascinating. I don't know that they've done that in the past, but of course, this is the first time in 50 years they've released new infrastructure for anything that they need to drive adoption of. So they're out here selling. I don't know if they have FedNow keychains. I'm going to go after this and see if they do. But a lot of infrastructure, a lot of generative AI. Um, to your point, people do seem pretty enthusiastic about being here. I've heard it's a little smaller and there maybe were some fintech companies that didn't come, but certainly a lot of folks. I It's as busy as I remember it being. Especially at the line in Starbucks, as always. Yes, yeah, that Starbucks, like, escalator combo right there, like, you'd be like, I'm right there. And they're like, which one of the tall, blonde guys with blue blazers, which one of them are you? So it doesn't tend to work that well as a meeting place. Did you actually have a chance to make it to any of the sessions this year? It's always a struggle to carve out time Uh, to do that. Yeah, the only sessions I made it to were the ones where I was mandated to be there because I was speaking or hosting. So I did get to see a little
1: content, participate in a little content. That's a good forcing function. It is, it is. Yeah, that worked. Um, Did you get to go to any? Yeah, I made it to a handful on Sunday and on yesterday. I mean, the ones that were particularly interesting... I did actually go to some of the AI and machine learning trap, which interestingly were like two discrete things on different floors. Interesting. In, in my mind, those are kind of like overlapping Apparently They're not, not, not identical yeah. but overlapping topics. Huh. And to your point, I mean, there are these trend cycles. We're definitely in a AI, gen AI yeah. hype cycle. And for me, it's the challenge is parsing, you know, reality from PR talking points. Yeah, yeah. Right? And we've transitioned from everyone saying, you know, oh, we're blockchain-powered, blah, 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 to yeah. we're AI-powered, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, I mean, the way I'm thinking about it at the moment, which, like, caveat, subject to change, <laughs> as I learn more about it. How dare you change your mind as you learn more information? Oh, terrible. I know. Is, you know, AI, machine learning, yeah. blockchain, whatever, these are tools. They're not by themselves business models. And yes. the lens I'm using is if you're looking at a company in the financial services space, fintech, bank, infrastructure, whatever, yeah, you know, how are they leveraging that AI to build products? How does it impact their economic model, if at yeah. all? Yeah. And you know that I'm happy to name names. It's like I think a great example is like Upstart. It's like, oh, okay, well, you know, we're AI lending, and it's like, sure. well, okay, but like the AI component is not what is driving the economics of your business. Right. It is a tool to decision credit applications. Right. But like your economics are derived from facilitating consumer lending.
0: Right. Right. So you're not an yeah. AI yeah. company. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think on that point, the other thing mm-hmm. I've noticed with the the AI conversation and how it's evolved a bit is sort of trying to catch the AI wave without differentiating exactly which wave you're catching, right? Because, yeah, I mean, Upstart's a good example. They've been using AI well before this Gen AI wave hit and everything got really exciting. And so there's a bit of a like rebranding where it's like, we've been doing AI, we're still doing AI, but we're also still not doing generative AI. But can we rebrand ourselves to sort of benefit from this AI wave and enthusiasm and I mean, to me, the thing I'm looking at is if you're actually talking generative AI, I'd like you to be very, very specific about what it is that you're using generative AI for. Because I think the only thing I've walked away with as like a baseline understanding, and it's a complex topic, but my kind of core thesis is it just works fundamentally different than other types of AI or machine learning.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a great point. When I was in the consumer lending sector, you know, as far back as like 2013, 2014. We the were dark used, ages, yes, yeah. We <laughs> were using, you know, machine learning models. Yes. And the tagline, the talking point back then was, you know, we use big data and machine learning to better yeah. underwrite customers, applicants that, you know, big banks won't. And so, again, it's, you know, parsing the talking points from the reality of like, how is this likely to actually impact your business, you yeah. know, the customer experience, the economics, and yeah. and I don't feel well enough informed to hazard a guess of the direction of travel there. Yeah,
0: no, I agree. I mean, I think the only thing that's kind of jumped out to me so far is, in much in the same way that neobanks kind of came along and sort of a big disruptive impact they had on banking was just their cost structure difference. We don't have branches, and so our just model is fundamentally different because we're not carrying that cost. I think generative AI has the potential to significantly reduce labor costs in different areas. And so I think one sort of lens on it that I have is when you start applying generative AI to sort of traditional businesses, even digital businesses that don't have large cost structures, how much more can you knock the costs down to operate? And I think that might be sort of a, a competitive lens on it over time, but it's still very early. And I don't know that we have a good sense yet of exactly where generative ai can actually remove human beings from the loop and then where it's just gonna make them more efficient and i don't know about you do you use it for your writing i don't find it to be that helpful for my efficiency
1: i've toyed around with it honestly i haven't used it a lot but again like i'm addicted to looking at like primary source documents (laughs) we know this to be true like on the one hand you know it's been difficult to carve out however many hours it takes to read 299 pages of 1033. On the other hand, to, I could have it read yeah. 1033 for me. I hadn't even thought about that. That's Ooh, a great idea. That's a great test. We'll see if okay. you can adequately, like at a John Pitts level, summarize <laughs> like the key <laughs> points of 1033 so we don't have to read all 300 pages. That would be amazing. Okay. So, all right. We, the, the, we will, this a to do. We'll, we'll mark come that, back. Yeah. You know,
0: mark that down as an idea. And I do want to revisit 1033. What
1: sessions did you go to or moderate, I should say?
0: Well, yeah. I, I, um, didn't get to sit in the audience for any, but I did host the Cannabis
1: Banking Summit on Sunday. This is a sector I'm very interested in and also do not know a lot about, so I, I want to hear what you learned moderating or hosting that. Well, I was thrilled to get to host it because I was like,
0: guys, I don't know anything about this. And they were like, that's okay, just get up on stage, be energetic, you know, bring the experts up. So I did my job and then I got to listen to the experts and... It was really interesting. I mean, they talked about the Safe Banking Act. And now apparently the new one's called the Safer Banking Act. And the third one will be called the Safest Banking Act. (laughs) But um, apparently, you know, stands very little chance of passage. Uh, You won't be surprised given sort of the state of Congress. They can't even pick a Speaker of the House. So like, there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm around that. There was, though, I will say a lot of enthusiasm from banks and credit unions that spoke, where they kind of talked about the benefit that they got from doing cannabis was not so much like the business itself. I mean, it's a good business. A lot of times in their communities, it's like a problem because there's these big cash-heavy businesses and it causes these like kind of negative externalities with businesses and consumers. So they sort of view it as their responsibility to sort of step in and help solve that problem. But what they said was like the real sort of superpower that came out of it was they had to build a much better risk management and compliance function than they had had before. And so they sort of viewed it as a forcing function for getting a whole lot better at compliance. And by sort of forcing themselves to do that, it opened up the opportunity to think about crypto. Probably not great timing for that. Or to think about online gaming, which as we've seen in Vegas, very good timing for that. Or even like, I think there might be a bit of an overlap between cannabis and then like banking as a service generally, another topic that we're going to circle back to. So I thought it was really interesting that in the same way that sometimes you like, Come to a wall that's too high to climb. And you like throw your hat over the wall, so you have to figure out a way to climb over it. Like cannabis is them climbing over the wall of compliance and figuring out how to do something hard like this at scale. Is it? And once they've developed those muscles, other things become easier. So that was kind of my thirty
1: thousand foot takeaway. Um, a lot of details too, but that was a big one. I mean, it, it, it. And this is you know not a political podcast, but one of the other sessions I found really interesting yeah. was Nigel Morris and I stand corrected. For all the Twitter followers who pointed out I tagged Hans Morris, <laughs> wrong fintech Morris. So Nigel Morris's session with mm. uh, Senator Mark Warner, mm. and again, you know, you, me, I imagine anyone listening to this spends most of their day, or at least working day, yeah. thinking about fintech banking, etc. You know, a point that Senator Warner made that that stuck with me was that. You know outside a handful of people on the Senate Banking Committee or House Financial Services Committee, if you ask them, you know what is fintech or mm. name a fintech company, they probably would not be able to answer you. Sure. And when I stop and think about it, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And I believe he also drew the contrast, strangely enough, with crypto in the sense that that has been so top of mind, mm-hmm. given things like FTX and you know Silvergate, etc., mm-hmm. that. Actually, they could probably better answer that question uh, given its higher level of salience versus fintech. Fintech, yeah. And I, I guess I don't really have like a super specific takeaway from that other yeah. than, than thinking about, you know, so much of what can happen or what cannot happen yeah. in banking and in fintech is driven or at least heavily influenced by what's happening in, you know, primarily Washington, DC, but also state level. Sure. And, you know, it kind of behooves all of us to help make sure that the people driving that agenda yeah you know are well informed and particularly informed of the you know potential benefits to their constituencies sure. from these companies or from the space
0: yeah now that's interesting i mean it dovetails actually with another topic i wanted to circle back to which is banking as a service your favorite topic and it's been in the water supply here to, to put it lightly a lot of banking as a service conversations but the connection there to what you were talking about, I think, is there seems to be sort of an ongoing challenge from a bank regulatory policy legislative perspective of sort of being able to paint a picture about what the benefits of fintech are, because so much of it is just, well, this is a threat to the safety and stability of the banking system. We're seeing all kinds of kind of compliance failures, which we can get into. But I do feel like, I mean, I don't know how to put this, almost like banking as a service needs a better lobby, right, in a way, because it's like, so much of it, I think, is seen as you're just doing new novel stuff that's creating problems, not you are enabling innovation that's helping like these legislators constituencies, right? I don't think that message to your point is getting through. Open banking, which is different, I think has a very different lobbying structure. And I think there's been a lot more proactive education of policymakers on that front. But I don't know, what's your sort of takeaway on like the current Temperature of banking as a service
1: and kind of what's happening. I think the temperature is high. Well, yeah, <laughs> hot, <so the> <laughs> hot, is hot here. Yeah, in my sense, I mean the regulatory apparatus in the U.S. Anyway, yeah, tends to be backward-looking and also fairly slow-moving. Right. And you know, somebody I was speaking with earlier today who is smarter and better connected than me that know, narrows it down a lot. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Said that they wouldn't be surprised if it's a, you know, a three to five year process unfolding, you know, for the banks with the most exposure in this space before you sort of see this current set of challenges, you know, kind of wash through. I think to your point, it's also a learning curve for the regulators to understand Where the risks here lie. Yeah. You know, a lot of what we've seen come out publicly from an enforcement standpoint has been, you know, BSA, AML related. And I think part of that is driven by, like, that's an area that bank regulators really understand. Yeah. They have a very clear examination manual and know how to go in and, you know, check for compliance with those regulations. Yeah. Other areas that may pose risk from these types of fintech bank partnerships or particularly with middleware providers yeah you know maybe less understood less Mm -hmm. defined and it may take time to understand hey if i'm looking at a five billion asset institution that's doing these kind of activities Mm -hmm. versus this other one you know what are the right questions i should be asking and and i think that that is something that is unfolding now
0: yeah yeah no i mean it seems like it's not very well tailored at the moment right i mean i to your point about regulation kind of having to catch up and moving slowly and not maybe fully understanding what's happening. What I've heard is from like a bank examination cycle, when they're talking to their prudential regulators, what I've heard is they're just getting a ton of homework. Like they're getting a massive number of questions. A lot more of them are on banking as a service, but I kind of get the sense the questions are not necessarily, they're much more specific, but they're not super tailored, if that makes sense. And so it's like, just tell us everything, like this is every question we could think to ask on one piece of paper, go answer all these questions. And I was talking to a bank that was saying they spent like a million dollars working with a consultant to answer one of the questions that they were asked on this thing, right? And so, like, what I think about banking I'm in the, as a I'm service, in the wrong line of work, apparently. <laughs> uh, yeah, you really are. Well, you could actually, yeah. like, jump into that line of work. Um, I would just have to write about it. But I think the thing that occurred to me there is just the cost of compliance in banking as a service seems to really be going up. And to your point about middleware platforms, that's been a focus. And... It seems like the original promise of the middleware platforms, which was we will make this an incredibly low-cost, scalable way to grow. I'm not going to say it's dead, but it's definitely been challenged on a number of different fronts because, yeah, maybe you can help with like the technical integration costs. Maybe you can help a little bit with like the customer acquisition, like help us get to know fintech programs costs, maybe a little. But compliance costs, I don't think there's really much scale to be had there. I mean, you can use technology. You don't have to throw bodies at the problem, although community banks tend to like to throw bodies at the problem, but there is technology, but you can't not invest in compliance. You can't outsource that compliance. That seems to be more than anything like the message that's coming through crystal clear is that that model is just not going to work for us.
1: Well and it, I mean, it's changing the risk-reward calculus of what programs are attractive to a partner bank. You yeah. know, and I think the case in point is like the Mercury Evolve Synapse situation, yeah. where it's like Mercury, had the lion's share of the deposits, is the most attractive program. And if you're thinking about, okay, I'm a bank, I have limited compliance resources, do I want 99 small programs or do I want one big program? Right. right. I want one big program. Right. Yeah, there's kind of
0: like a flight to quality almost I've found in banking as a service right now. It's double-sided, right? Because... The fintech companies want to work with quality sponsor banks, right? Like not one that's under a consent order, one that has their compliance buttoned up. I think compliance has become a huge differentiator in the space over the last uh, six months to a year. But also on the Bass Bank side, it's not worth their time to work with everybody, right? And they, I, what I hear over and over is, yeah, we have the ability to be really choosy yeah. right now. And so I feel honestly for
1: early stage fintech
0: founders that need to find a partner bank. Like, it's kind of tough going out there
1: right now. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it remains to be seen what are the second order impacts of that on innovation, right? Like, if, you know, again, if I'm on the bank side and my risk tolerance has adjusted down, I may be less likely to want to work with a program that feels like it's in a gray area or coloring outside the lines. Right. And on the one hand, like that can be a rational decision for an individual bank to make. Is mm-hmm. it? But in aggregate, does that sort of inhibit, you know, experimentation with new right. products, new business models, new ideas? Right, right. Or like less experienced founders, they well, may yeah. have a good idea, but they're just not going to
0: make it through the vetting process the way that a more experienced one would. Yes. Pattern matching. Yes. I want repeat
1: founders. I want Stanford grads. Yeah. Yeah. Company, yeah or companies. Yeah.
0: yeah. It's not trying new stuff as much. Um. Can we wrap up with four minutes on open banking? In 1033? Yeah, let's do it. I think we can cover everything yes. about open banking in four minutes.
1: Uh, only if you use Gen AI to summarize <laughs> it. <more. laughs>
0: Which is, again, a good idea. I'm going to do that after this because I still haven't read the full rules. But what was your sort of one takeaway? I know you've listened to a lot of conversations. I think you went to some sessions where they were talking about this. Like, what's the thing that kind of jumps out?
1: There is some perhaps level of disappointment at the scope of types of accounts or types of institutions covered with the important caveat that like that was a legislative decision made 13 years ago right you know that was not a decision that was necessarily entirely within the cfpb's control i think the the positioning particularly coming from the bureau that this is something that's going to facilitate ease of account switching, I don't buy that for <laughs> lack of a, a more eloquent phrasing. Yeah. You know, people don't necessarily, and we have evidence of this from other markets, particularly like the UK, yes. use of the UK current account switch service. <laughs> which no one uses. Very few people use it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, people don't tend to close accounts. They tend to open incremental accounts and maybe right. let one go dormant or use, use multiple. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not necessarily convinced we're going to see a situation where like, once, you know, in however many years when Mm. this is finally finalized and implemented. Yeah, yeah. And as we know from the payday rule, which is still not implemented, whatever, like seven or eight years later, there... Takes a while. It could take a while. Yeah. I think we're less likely to see a legal challenge in this case, Mm. just because the sort of stakeholder math is quite a bit different than in in payday. Where everyone is on the other side. (laughs) Where where it was quite a uniform (laughs) pushback from the industry. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'm not necessarily subscribing to the argument we're going to see a wave of account switching happen once this goes live. I think there are other areas, you know, lending products, credit cards, where that might be more likely. No, yeah. I mean,
0: I think, like, cash flow underwriting seems like a big winner coming out of all of this because it was specifically sort of referenced in the rules. There have been a number of kind of companies here at the show that have been announcing fundraisers or uh, launching products around cash flow underwriting so it seems to have a lot of momentum so i do think there are use cases where it'll like be helpful and will make more sense i think the only other things i'd add to that are one there was a very strong emphasis on a fair standard setting body and the only name that anyone ever talks about is fdx so like it's going to be the financial Data exchange setting the standards for this but the question is how will FDX have to change what it does in order to be compliant with what the CFPB wants them to do? And, you know, I mean, there's lots of concern, I think, coming from the fintech side of the table that FDX is largely sort of steered by the big banks who have been much bigger participants. I
1: got some aggressive pushback when I wrote something to that effect. Did you? Yes. Um, That it was was not fair to simply look at, like, counts of number of board members or something. Sure, yeah, sure. No, yeah. I mean... So they dispute that characterization. They dispute,
0: yeah. yeah, and that's... I mean, I think there's some fairness to that. I think... I mean, I think the other thing about it that is a problem for fintech is fintech companies haven't participated. They've had the opportunity to participate, but they haven't participated. They outsourced caring about this problem to Plaid and MX and Finicity and those companies. And they didn't actively participate in the standard setting themselves. And so I think it's a little rich for fintech companies to complain about FDX because like, it was sitting there. You could have joined and gotten more involved in some of those working committees. So I think FDX is going to have to adjust a bit. And then I think the other thing that I've noticed is there's not a lot of discussion about how these rules are going to apply to fintech companies and non-banks as data providers. And I think that'll be really interesting because like, Apple has a wallet they have more than $10 billion in annual revenue. That technically should mean that they have to comply with this requirement to provide data six months after the rule is finalized. I don't think it's going to be quite that easy because Apple's not a big fan of forking over customer data. And I think there's going to be a lot more fights on that side of the table. FinTech companies, again, they don't talk about it. They try to keep it quiet, but they don't want to share their customer data any more than banks do.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's been, I think, a perception probably not incorrect that the relationship has been data goes from banks to fintechs but to your point yeah this will develop or is developing into bi-directional and does cash app does venmo does paypal want to be giving data to jpmc to city yeah so it'll be interesting to watch how this continues to unfold
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. That is all the time we have. We have to uh, get in the next uh, podcast host for the coveted Money 2020 podcast booth. Jason, I'm so glad we got to do this in person. This was so fun. And uh, we'll talk again in about a month to recap all the fintech craziness. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fintech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest fintech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love fintech takes, please tell a friend.